Welcome to Dramatic Pause, recorded on the unceded ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations at the Pyahole Arts Centre in the downtown east side of Vancouver. My name's Alastair Wallace, and I'm the technical director here at the Firehall, and it's been my pleasure to co-produce this podcast with our special guest today, Donna Spencer. It's been a long and difficult year for all of us, and those working in the performing arts have been hit particularly hard, with theatres, workshop spaces, galleries, concert halls, and more all being closed to prevent the spread of COVID-19. This podcast was started to talk with artists about the many ways art has survived and thrived despite the lockdowns. Donna has spoken with performers, writers, dancers, directors, as well as many others who work behind the art to help this industry survive. So as we look towards the new year, I've taken this opportunity to speak with Donna about her own journey and reflect on some of the things she's learned hosting this show. Oh, and I've also chucked in some best ofs from the year that's been, so apologies for the very flimsy segues. Enjoy. Speaking of segues, I'd like to start back in July with a few words Renee Morisot had about listening. How do you listen? I mean, this is the thing, right? Is that, you know, in, in, in a lot of our, our ceremonies, it's really about listening to to you know not only the songs but to if you're in a sweat listening to uh, the the rocks the grand the grandfathers that are in the center of the of the sweat our listening has become colonized in a sense that um, we've been um, we've been so um, marginalized and I'm not talking just about indigenous people I'm talking about Canadians in general right that that you know, the way we listen to the environments that we're in, the way we, um, we listen to uh, ourselves and our own, our own rhythms in, in terms of how we're moving in the world. And what's really unique about a lot of our in- ceremonies that I grew up with, with the sweat and the sun dance and the pipe ceremonies and uh, the smudging and, and those things is that it's really about listening. That a lot of times when we, you know, our, pray, our prayers are our wishes. And so it's not that we're not listening, but we're requesting support and help. But a lot of times when we finish with our ceremonies, it's about how we leave those ceremonies and listen to the environments that we're in. And I think that in this this era of time that we're in, how do we listen? <laughs> and in what way do we get out of the way of actually truly listening without a colonized mind or without a, a mind that's that's uh, been impacted, you know, by one's trauma or or fear, you know? Um, there's a, you know, I, I find that in this, this time right now, um, and the fact that there is so much harm that's happening to our, our, our brothers and sisters uh, that aren't Caucasian. Um, how do we um, make it that, this, that the world that we have within our own life, in our own lived reality, what is it that we do you know, when we, we go out into, into this, this city of Vancouver, you know? And, and I mean, it's very simple in, in a sense that, you know, being very humble about what our, 
true nature is, and I think that's what this has brought about for me in, in the gardening, you know, and in, in listening. And now that the fact that I have slugs, I'm, I'm asking myself, okay. Why do I have slugs? Why do I have slugs? <laughs> you know. Now, here's my chat with Donna. Apologies for the sound quality. It was a particularly busy day on the streets outside Donna's office in the downtown east side. Hi, Donna. Hi, Alistair. Our listeners, our dear listeners, may have heard you interview various artists, Van, Vancouver, uh, Vancouver performing arts uh, legends, uh, but they might not know much about Donna Spencer. Now, I know you're uh, artistic producer, director, writer, actor, uh, all-round artistic uh, powerhouse, but who, who are you and what's your role in this community? Uh, well, I've always been a little bit of a... Um shit disturber I think uh, in my life Uh, and getting into the theater and the arts was a a step that I thought was one that I actually couldn't take so I had to dare myself to take it Um, and it became um, evident that it was something I needed to do after I got into a car crash on my way back from San Francisco and my car was totaled and I was sitting in the hospital and going well you know you could have been killed and you're not doing what you want to do so why don't you do what you want to do, which led me to getting into the arts. So uh, that led to me wanting to do work that I thought had real meaning, that connected to communities, that was relevant to my life. Uh, And uh, when I say it was a shit disturber, I think it was one of the first advocacy actions that I got involved with really on behalf of the arts was uh, in 1986, and yes, I'm very old. to create a, a collective of arts groups and arts organizations to um, actually try to impress that when Expo 86 was happening in Vancouver, that Vancouver artists needed to be involved and it didn't need to just be people from across the country and around the world. From that, actually, the Alliance for Arts and Culture was formed and I chaired that for a few years. Uh, and then People who are much better at making things work on an ongoing basis took over and the organization still runs and still is advocating for the arts. So that was probably my first big sort of stir up. But I also uh, felt that it was important that we create um, a way for those who didn't have a voice in arts and culture at that time to have access. And when I say that, it's really the indigenous uh, individuals uh, were not seen on stage unless there was a play that needed someone. And even in that case, it was very seldom an indigenous artist that was used in that role, uh, that there were very few opportunities for artists from culturally diverse backgrounds. Um, so we started a training program here at the fire hall. But really, I, I, that's who I am. I mean, I really, <laughs> I'm just um, a mom with two kids who loves the arts, and now I'm a grandmom, which is even better. Um, And uh, I've always loved all aspects of the arts. I think it's curiosity that actually drives me to do what I do. And do you think a a lot of your work has uh, been driven by advocacy? Uh, Probably, uh, in a way. I mean, certainly the plays that I pick, the uh, playwrights that I'm interested in working with, the actors that I'm interested in working with are, are involved in telling stories that actually... I think, uh, I hope, actually stimulate thought and consideration amongst our audiences as well as amongst the artists that are doing them. Um, Although I really think what I choose to do is pick pick pieces that are good stories. That's what I try to do because I think 
storytelling is really what people need. Um, and whether it's through a dance performance or a recording, a piece of music, they're really looking for story. So, uh, and stories that they can have empathy with or actually uh, relate to or take them away from the life that they're in. And that's one of the things that brings me back to COVID is actually, I think people are craving uh, the opportunity to hear someone or someone or see someone actually sharing a story. And I'm not talking about an online version. I'm talking about an in the room experience because they're all unique. Every time you walk into a theater, it's unique. And um, so that kind of connection with, uh, connection with, people as a community rather than uh, entertainment or like a connection with an audience. That seems to be what's driven your kind of artistic career. Is that correct? I think that's correct. That's not to say that I haven't worked on musicals. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think it's correct. I, I really do believe that if you're seeing something on stage, it affects you politically, um, even if it's uh, uh, Noel Coward, for example, there is a political takeaway from that. Um, so I, I guess that's what I'm more interested in. I, I feel people can be entertained and also learn new things at the same time. Back in July, Donna had spoken to Amari Newton about his politically motivated musical, Sal Capone. My career was in kind of in the tank at that point, right? I was like, I, I, I had been making my, my living doing theater, but I didn't want to act in theater anymore. I was trying to get a foothold into film and TV, but I was basically doing extra work. So I had a lot of time to like think and sit there and reflect on what I wanted to do with my life. And this was the impetus for Sal Capone. I was just like, I can't keep doing extra work in these Hollywood trash white supremacist fantasy movies. And I don't want to be on stage feeling like I'm being exploited by white supremacist institutions and directors. So it was, it was a real crossroad. So the, the play is very angry and it's very political. And it was just a lot of different feelings I had dumped on, onto the page. Well, it worked really well. And, and, and uh, can you talk just a little bit about Billy Muristy's character in that piece? Because he seemed to be, uh, well, not necessarily a trickster, but certainly... Uh... Yeah. I would say that it definitely came from the, the trickster tradition. It, there was definitely elements of that in there. But um, so Billy Muristy played a character called Mac uh, Shanene. And Billy Morassi's character was uh, an indigenous, a, a transgendered indigenous woman who took on the persona of a black woman. So the, the, there was an affectation to her voice and she worked the streets and she, she was um, just this hybrid of characters who I'd seen in Montreal and in Vancouver. Like people from Vancouver, I don't know if they know this, but the downtown east side doesn't exist anywhere else I've been. I've never, like, the, the, the disparity of wealth, if you start on the western side of, of Hastings Street and you walk from Coal Harbor all the way through to East Van, you go through every possible socioeconomic bracket. It's insane. And then this was the first time I'd seen, unfortunately, the devastation firsthand and how it's affected Indigenous people was when I moved to Vancouver because in, in Montreal, of course we have reservations, like we had the Oka crisis famously happened there, but you literally had to cross a bridge to go to the, to the reserve in Montreal. So you didn't see that many indigenous people dealing with oppression firsthand. But when I came to Vancouver, just seeing people and being like, this person is clearly struggling, struggling. They're, they're you know, doing drugs right in the middle of the day. Nobody's helping them, no one. So that, that character was a, a hybrid of 
some of the, the, the things I'd seen that black people are struggling with in black culture and indigenous culture and how they became the voice of the oppressed and the voice of the streets. Like they were the personification of the voice of the streets. Well, and, and obviously you observed that there were uh, trans, a lot of trans uh, or two-spirited individuals in this community and they still yeah. are. And how the urban indigenous population ended up here, they come from all over the province, but also this is where a lot of the fishing camps were way back when before Vancouver became Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, and that connection to the place is still there for a lot of people. And they're not necessarily all on drugs, but they certainly are low income. Yeah. Um, so yes, you're right. This is the most, one of the most unique communities because there is a community here, uh, which people don't recognize when they drive through or drop in. You've had a lot of work produced directed, written by you, what, what, what would be something that you'd be most proud of in your career? Something that I've written? Well, uh, maybe <laughs> something that you've had a hand in creating. Um, I think one of the first pieces that I thought, no, I didn't write this, Rahul Varma wrote it, it's called Counter Offense. And one of the most um, exciting parts of staging that was we approached it from a very, um, different way we didn't have a set designer we did have a lighting designer uh, but the actors uh, in that show uh, and it was a, a culturally diverse cast um, I asked them on the first day of rehearsal I said okay we, we're going to create this space uh, we're all going to work together on creating this space we're going to use what we have in this room and that's going to be our set and we're going to rely very ser very uh, uh, seriously on lighting and James Proudfoot did the lighting for that and it was one of those pieces that everybody got very immersed in, and uh, um, that was a good one. The other one was a Jason Sherman piece, um, and that, again, the actors got totally involved in. So it was it really, I think for me, I wish we had the time and the budget to spend six weeks in the rehearsal room with all of the creative team doing the creation, as opposed to... Uh, the view of a director going, okay, this is exactly how it has to be. I want you here at that moment. So that was an exciting time. Um, uh, the other event that I think that I really am proudest of, uh, or one of the things that I'm proudest of, is uh, we did a staging of You're in Town, the musical. And I had seen it on Broadway, um, and I went, oh, that piece is perfect for the fire hall. And I thought, well, we'll never get it. It's a huge musical. <laughs> we'll never get the rights. But somehow we managed to slip through the cracks and we got the rights and we were the first, I think, company in, in Canada, but certainly in Western Canada, to stage a professional production of You're in Town. And why I'm so proud of that is we had like 25 people with the musicians and the stage managers working downstairs in our little theater and we had people tucked in little <laughs> holes so that they could actually have some privacy uh, but that show went on to win, I think, the Outstanding Production with the Jessies, and I think I won a Director Award, but lots of people got awards for that show. But the reason I thought it was really important that we do it was because politically there is a message behind that piece. It's about, it is kind of about population control, but it's also about use of water. Um, do you think um, having a message, uh, even in, when I know the Firehall makes money and the Firehall <laughs> does popular shows, um, do you think there's always a consideration on how it impacts the community and how the shows that the Firehall picks can, you know, help at least the Vancouver Collective. I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, 
I think we've certainly had our duds that haven't done that. Um, we've had uh, successes in trying to move people forward to other considerations. I certainly remember when we first started programming and, and um, uh, trying to push forward a different voice or an inclusive voice. There was a pushback from the community because they couldn't understand why we would want to do that. And really, for me, it was about making sure that all of those who were in Canada, those voices got heard. So, yeah, I do think there's been uh, certainly impact on building the strength of the community. Well, I, I know you've said before that uh, the fire hall, uh, kind of the ethos is to do Canadian stories uh, and how that sometimes can seem like a, an unusual edict in the wider theatre community. Has, uh, has that edict, doing Canadian stories, changed over the years? Like the definition of what makes a Canadian story? Uh, oh, yeah, because, of course, we haven't always done, like Town, for example, was written uh, by a fringe, for a fringe festival, actually, but it was an American artist. Mm. Um, I think it's changed in that I like to consider work that actually might touch the Canadian audience or re uh, respond to what the Canadian audience is seeing or what's going on in our society. I mean, I, I, we did Stuff Happens, which is a David Hare play uh, at a time when um, it needed to be seen because politically what was going on in the States was crazy, well, still is a bit. Um, so I chose that piece because no one else was cho choosing to do that kind of work. I mean, and for me, I'm very interested in the politics that are going on, large scale and small scale. So I think that's kind of what's influenced our, our definition of what is Canadian. We certainly do much more Canadian, uh, more Canadian playwrights than we do international. Uh, and that's a conscious choice because I think Canada needs to be talking about Canada, but it doesn't always talk about the things that I think we should be talking about on stage. I know in Australia, um, another English-speaking offshoot colony, <laughs> we have a um, phenomenon called the cultural cringe, where everyone desperately wants to see Australian stories until they have the opportunity to see an Australian story. Do you feel like there is um, a cultural deficit in the interest in your own voice? Um... Do you mean, do you think that we are looking at the world in a very small way if we only look at Canadian theatre? Or... No, the opposite. Do you, think, do you think there's not enough focus on the Canadian voice? Well, I think certainly when I started in the business there wasn't. Um, we were primarily looking to American plays and uh, British plays. Um, and Canadian, the Canadian um, playwriting community was really small. But that has shifted, certainly in the, the 40 years that I've been in the business. It's shifted now, so a lot of the work, uh, except for perhaps in the big regional theatres, is Canadian. And it's not, um, uh, it's not that we just want to do Canadian plays here or that some companies just want to... Well, actually, that's not true. There are companies that only do Canadian plays. But... Um, I think people are afraid of Canadian stories because somehow they don't think that it would be good enough if it hasn't been seen on Broadway or in the West End. And I'm sure that happens in Australia as well. Yeah. It's probably, okay, we're, we're, we're a colony of this, so we either look to the south to the border for approval or to England for approval. Yes, Australian theatre is 90% 
foreign accents. And it's not to say that some of those stories aren't great, and, and most of those stories, there's a huge relevance to what we're doing, but I'm not really interested in, in uh, Firehall spending this small amount of money that we have <laughs> to tell a story that's necessarily been on Broadway unless somebody else isn't telling it and it needs to be said here in Vancouver. Recently, when speaking with Michelle Rimmel, we found that even Eastern Europe cares about telling Canadian stories. I have two plays on in Poland and the Czech Republic and in Eastern Europe, Sexy Laundry and Henry and Alice, that have been running um, for five years. Wow! Yeah, so it's been fantastic. <laughs> and I actually went a few years ago to see Sexy Laundry in Polish, and it truly was one of the best productions I've seen. They have a real history and culture of theatre um, in Poland and Eastern Europe, and it was just great and very eye-opening as to what they could do with the play in translation. Um, so I wanted to go back when they did the sequel, and they were interested in some of my other work, so that was the plan. How is What is Sexy Laundry in Polish? I don't know. Actually, that's a very good question. I have the poster at home, and it's it, it's something like this, but I'm going to mangle it. It's Sex de la Opportunik, but... It probably sounds different in Polish, yeah, but that's yeah. what it looks like if I so sound it out. Um, but in the translation, it probably means exactly the same thing, right? It's something like that, because one of the things, it's difficult to translate sexy laundry. It's been translated into nine languages. And like I know in Icelandic, it's the marriage bed, they decided to call it, because sexy laundry didn't mean anything to them. It's really a reference to something that happens in the play that makes it mean something. So... They take some creative license in translation, I think, too. <laughs> well, I'm sure they do, because yeah. you know, we all uh, perhaps presume that if you translate a word from English to French or oh, to yeah. Polish, that it actually is the exact translation, but it never is because of euphemisms. and. Absolutely. And I, I, in this process of having some of my work translated, I've really learned about the art of translation, and the, it, it's very important to get a good translator. And I've been lucky in those countries to have good translators. Um, women, actually older women who've been doing it for years. And one of them had translated some of Tom Stoppard's work. And when I was in the theater um, in Warsaw the first time, I was told this story because they, it, they're allowed to change up to 10 to 20 percent of the actual script, the translator and the dramaturg working together. Whereas I think in Canada and the U.S. we have much more stringent, like it's got to be word for word, talk to the playwright. Anyways, they were telling me this story that um, Tom Stopper came to see a show and just before the lights went down, the director turned to him and said, don't worry, we fixed the ending. <laughs> It's a fabulous story. Yeah. It's a very fabulous story. I, I can't imagine what Tom Stroppard would have said. I don't but... know. But I do know that I've watched my show in different places and gone, I think there's a monologue here. And, you know, and you're not quite sure like what they've done. And Alice took up smoking in, in Poland, which she doesn't do in the play in Vancouver and stuff. But... Uh, I don't know. It's all well, part of the art of it. Of course, smoking in Vancouver might not be seen to be culturally appropriate, exactly. but I don't think that's come into play no, in a lot of European centers. No, you can still smoke centers. in the bathroom in, in Poland and not have the police arrive. <laughs> uh, now this year we've uh, yeah, we've started off this podcast and you've been talking to, this, this will be our 12th uh, episode, um, and you've actually spoken to quite a few uh, Canadian playwrights. You've spoken to Amari Newton, uh, who is the writer of Sal Capone, uh, Michelle Rimmel, who came in for the Amaryllis, 
uh, Alan Morgan, who wrote his own story. I know what uh, we've come to know these performers and writers, but how does how does a a writer who might not write up stories that reflect the current mainstream culture, how do you find these artists and how do you know they're kind of what the Firehall needs to tell? Uh, I think it was a lot easier before the COVID shutdown, for <laughs> sure. I mean, I used to travel a lot. I like to travel a lot. I like to go see work. I like to um, actually experience sitting in an audience with uh, with the artistry that's on stage and watching what the art audience does. I, I So in Omari's case, um, I, I saw his work. Uh, in Alan's case, I've known him for years. I, I am concerned that I am not hearing enough about those writers that are writing uh, that I don't get the opportunity to see because we can't move about. So I, I would go to festivals, but I also trust my instinct, I think. Um, and uh, people, uh, when I'm choosing work, I think people, if they can get the work to me and I can get a chance to either see it or read it, that's the first step. And then, of course, I'm always looking for uh, new voices. Uh, but I also think that there are not a lot of plays that are being put up that aren't ready to be on stage um, because people are writing, they're writing for stage, but they're writing so fast to get it on stage that quite often we end up seeing plays that are looking like um, television sitcom or uh, not quite there. But I think people just need to write and, and frankly, um, to get it past, I think there's a perception that there are a lot of gatekeepers that stop people from getting their work done. And perhaps in bigger companies there are, but um, I think the only gatekeeper that I face here is the fact that I just don't have enough time to see everything, to read everything, to be everywhere. Well, I know, of course, that a, a new play needs four workshops before it can be seen to get the first workshop. Uh, do you think it, it, there is enough resources for uh, development and dramaturgy in um, I think, well, Vancouver's very lucky. We have uh, a Playwright Theater Center, which actually does a lot of great development work. But I also think that um, if someone brought a play to me that they trusted me and they wanted me to develop it, um, I wouldn't necessarily send it off to a Playwrights Development Center. I would try to find the resources to try to develop it here. Now, that's the shortfall. We don't have a huge, short, we don't have a huge amount of money to invest in script development. Uh, and that is an issue. Um, I think it's also very important that playwrights write with somebody, uh, a dramaturg in mind, that actually is um, skilled at being a dramaturg, and certainly Playwrights Theatre Centre can provide that skill to you, but often I find that people have their best friend or their best buddy as their dramaturg, and I don't really think that that is helpful, because a dramaturg has to get in there and be able to move the play along, not change what it looks like, uh, but to try to get to the core of the piece. Like, what is the honest core of this piece? And and not be afraid to ask the playwright to go back in and write again and again. Someone who's not afraid to bring out the scissors. That's, that's right. But I also, I've sat in workshops where I've watched uh, actors who have a strong voice change the the the, the change what the play is really about because they don't think their character 
really is written the way it should be. So I think it's really important to have somebody can, whether it's the director or the dramaturg, that can kind of ride herd on uh, the creators that are sitting around the table that are giving input to the playwright, because the, the playwright's whole play can be changed by a strong voice that says, you know, you really need to do this. So I, I, didn't, I think it's the dramaturge's job to actually pull out the gems that the playwright has and to be, and, and to, and to be able to say, actually, well, you know, maybe you should go back to the drawing board again. Maybe what the play is about is really not what you've written. It's maybe about this, so you might have a whole new play. I always wish that there was a technician dramaturg who can say to the author, you need to cut the running water in the third scene. That's going to be too expensive. <laughs> well, there's always that. And I mean, I have to say that I, I do find myself as the producer, putting the producer hat on, when I read something going, how on earth are you going to do that? And that's some times uh, the job of a somebody who has a lot of technical experience to sort of say that but on the other side of it we're in the theater and we're here to create magic so if we can figure out a way to create magic that gives the playwright what they need then we should do that please don't make me do running water on stage Donna I, I know how, I know how to do it I know <laughs> how to do it <laughs> While working as a male clerk for a union, Alan Morgan tells us how he created some theatre magic of his own when premiering his monologue, Pride, Zero to Sixty, to his colleagues. You ended up turning this into a one-person show that you wrote and performed, and you've done another one since then, and I'm just curious about how you decided to start writing your own material. Well, and that was... Okay, the, so I wrote Pride, the Pride a show about Pride, because um, unions have been very good. Uh, unions have been really uh, supportive of uh, equal rights, I think. You know, it's, they were leery off the front, but they were some of the first uh, groups that enshrined sort of uh, gay rights in their uh, constitutions and things. And so at the Nurses Union, there was a week-long pride celebration. I don't know how many people. I think I was the only gay person there. There might have been a few lesbians, but, you know. Right. But it, but it was a big thing and they would have uh, a week um, uh, lunch hour sometimes movies or a discussion and I asked the person who was organizing if I might write a piece on pride and they called it zero to 60 because at that time I was 60 and just to try and understand that because my generation is a generation that grew up in the diagnosis of homosexuality as a mental illness mm -hmm. and where you could just be killed because you were that you were that. You know, or someone would put you into conversion therapy or something. You're, you're yeah. less than human. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was my, and you grew up with that. And then we're in a time when, at that time, the, you know, black American president of the United States thanked us for all the work we'd done to make love equal, you know, and it was like, that's a huge chasm to try and span. And I wanted to understand it. So I wrote this thing, 060. There was about 50 people came from all over the building to listen to that. Um, whatever it was, lectures, story. Um, and it was emotional for a lot of people. And right as soon as I finished, this uh, Scots woman, she was a, I just loved her. She's really, uh, got up, unplanned. I didn't know she was going to get up. And she said, I just, I just want to thank Alan on behalf of my family because I have a gay son. And I want to thank him for all he did to help our son be just who he is. And I was like, I just lost the plan. Talking with um, Imiko Morita, uh, the organizer of the Powell Street Festival, and talking with Esther Rosenberg, 
organizer of the culture crawl. These have been very hard hit during the pandemic. How do you see the relationship between the Firehall Arts Centre and the kind of cultural landmarks of the city? I think the Firehall has a very important place to er, place or has a very important place and a very important role to play um, in terms of community strength, building community strength. I think our connections to Eastside Culture Crawl and the Powell Street Festival are very important to be maintained and, and we, we need as a community to have a strength that we build together. Um, I've always felt that the community would be stronger if we were less competitive and more supportive. Um, however, the nature of the business that we're in pushes us towards competi com competitiveness because we're competing for grants, we're competing for donors, we're competing for audiences, we're competing to get the artists that we want. So we, we need to sort of sit back and go, okay, uh, or I think the fire hall's role is to sit back and go, okay, well, we can. these are people we can partner with and we can support, and they may be doing different art forms than we are, but those art forms always, all contribute to a very healthy city. And in, case, in the case of Powell Street Festival, that festival has done so much for this neighborhood. And, and this was the neighborhood where a lot of the Japanese Canadians lived before internment. And they have not, they've come back and tried to build a healthy community. And that's what they tried to do this year They're, with their festival. When they realized they couldn't do the festival at Oppenheimer, they did an online festival and a lot of the benefit of that festival went towards feeding people in the community. And the Crawl, for example, they did an online festival as well this year, which was a real undertaking for them because a lot of their spaces um, are spaces that people would just jam into to see the art and the artists would make so much money off of that festival. I don't know how it's happened. I don't know how it uh, went this year, but Firehall has a role in that. And we are also, I like to say this, we're in the heart of where this old city was. This is the heart of Vancouver. We have the best architecture around us um, then, I mean, I'd rather wander through Gastown and look at that architecture than look at the glass buildings that we're building over on, um, uh, by Canada, uh, not by Canada Place, by uh, BC Place. Um, so I, I think the neighborhood deserves to be supported. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's sort of like, well, we have a role here. And however the fire hall goes forward, it is, you know, one of the oldest buildings still standing in Vancouver. And Hopefully, it'll be standing a long time. <laughs> Emiko Morita from the Powell Street Festival spoke about their role in the community of the downtown east side and the sometimes tricky relationship they've had with Oppenheimer Park. Well, these days, Powell Street Festival, our advocacy and outreach uh, committee in particular, but uh, throughout the organization, we're really trying to think about uh, our accountability as settlers. Because, yes, we're, we you know, we had this, we have this bad, disruptive, damaging experience, but we also <laughs> came disrupted, here yeah. and uh, were, you know, and, and dis disrupted, displaced Indigenous people. And, and it's not very interesting or productive to, to get yourself stuck in an eddy of what's happened in the yeah. past. Yeah. And uh, it's really fascinating kind of challenge to to figure out how to work with that history to hopefully do some good so as we were building the telethon that's that we're, we're yeah, doing in, in lieu of the festival 
uh, one of our challenges is how do you bring in such a diverse community when a lot of our stakeholders don't have access to a computer? And, um, uh, and when the festival and a large part of the festival is about place, we're raising funds to launch a downtown, uh, to be part of the Downtown Eastside uh, Community Kitchen Network. So we'll have a Powell Street Festival community kitchen that will fund peers, Downtown Eastside residents, to prepare meals once a week. And it, where our campaign is going very well. And I think that um, we'll be able to maintain this as seed funding for a year to really figure out how to really explore how to um, create, use the assets of Powell Street Festival, whether it's our experience and our cultural workers training program that we've been developing or our physical festival gear. How can we not just use it for a two-day festival, but year-round offer it up in a way that actually builds capacity and creates works toward economic equity in the downtown east side. So we're, I'm very excited about it. And uh, uh, it also is going to be this interesting uh, exploration of how to create a communication network and how to find points of connection with residents in the neighborhood who are precariously housed or unhoused, aren't in the park. So the whole time we've been talking, I've been wanting to say how much I love Oppenheimer Park and its layered history. And um, right now, if you, you go there, there's a fence that is, uh, you can't even walk along the sidewalk no, no. and peer in. It is so aggressive. And uh, uh, to me, it is. It hurts somehow, like, <laughs> when I see it. And well, I it's uh, meant it's to be an <laughs> open place for people gathered. Yes. This time of year, uh, we're gearing up for the festival, and I'm regularly walking through the park and saying hello to people, and they want to know, what are you doing here? And I say, well, we're getting ready, and here comes Powell Street. And it's an important moment where, where uh, I see, over time, familiar faces, and uh, we're able to start scheming on projects together and so on. Right now, that's not possible. Donna, what have you been up to this year? <laughs> I know you've been here a lot. Um, I discovered really early on that uh, I wasn't going to be able to work at home. Uh, my partner was working at home, and uh, we both care a lot for each other, but we are very active, so we couldn't really... Uh, once we were both in this house all the time I went okay I can't I can't do this I can't do this I have to find a way to do something so that's my personal thing I went okay I have to get out and do things um, and what I really wanted to do was find a way to bring people back to the theater um, or the courtyard as it were um, so my life became about um, trying to find ways to bring art to people uh, but also it became about rediscovering that I can actually play the piano. Uh, that was one of my quests. <laughs> and I, of course, I sat down and made a huge list of all the things that I would be doing during COVID. I think I've done about two of them, three of them maybe. I think mostly what I've been doing is actually working and writing a lot of grants. 
um, and trying to figure out what we can do because I think it's important to the staff of the fire hall, I hope, to actually stay active and stay engaged in what they do. And that's part of my job is to do that, is to animate this building. So I have to say that I've been trying to do that and um, doing all sorts of different things to do that. I, ex exploring the podcast has been great. I think this is something that we want to keep doing, exploring streaming and recording. I think this is something that we want to keep doing even after COVID. Um, and I think uh, finding a way to stage things differently is really important to me. Well, we've learned a lot about, uh, all of us have learned a lot about um, uh, communication technologies throughout the year. But um, what do you think you've learned personally through, you know, the year? I I think what I have learned personally is the fact that we cannot give up, but I think I already knew that. <laughs> I mean, as an artist, you you don't go into this business, I mean, if you go into this business thinking it's going to be easy, it's not the right business for you. Um, but I think I've been reminded, actually, that people are, are, are pretty great <laughs> and, and want... Um, want connections and me too i mean personally i went oh my god I, I i miss seeing these artists i miss having this dialogue with them i really watching something online is not the same even zooming and having zoom meetings online is not the same so i've learned how how much i actually like people which is which is kind of interesting from somebody who considers yourself a loner, but uh, it, it's like I really do miss my colleagues, and I just want to see them. And seeing them on Zoom is is great. Like I just saw somebody on a Zoom call this morning, and they went, "I haven't seen you all year." <laughs> we had a little chat on the side, um, but it's sort of like uh, that's what I've learned, I guess. Do you think there's any substitute for that opening night drinks atmosphere, that kind of camaraderie? Uh, not for me. Um, I think that camaraderie is something that I've, I have enjoyed all my life. And, and certainly the, the, yes, some opening nights are so stressful, you just want to get out of the, the room. But uh, on the other side of it, people generally want to just hang out and talk. And I think that's valuable. That ended with COVID uh, when we were doing our productions during COVID. None of that uh, casual chit-chat happened, which was good. I mean, we, we needed to do that for COVID protocol, and I think it's really important for people to understand that when we gather to do theatre, we don't necessarily, in COVID times, gather to have long chit-chats or parties in the bar. Uh, I think I'm going to go back to um, the younger generation, which you are of, and I, I'm not sure if... They are feeling the loss of those uh, meetings together as much as as some of the senior members of our community because perhaps they've been um, communicating online much more than I have. I mean, my communicating online, I know when it started, but some people have grown up with communicating online and that being their only way of contact. So when I watch people texting each other up in you know, in a meeting or uh, at a restaurant on their phones, I go, well, you're not really connecting at this lunch you're having. You're actually looking at your phone. Donna wasn't the only one feeling the technology blues. Back in our first episode, David Diamond speaks about his experience with online theatre in a COVID era. 
What do you miss the most? Hmm. Well, you know, at a very personal level, I live alone. And I've enjoyed that mostly <laughs> because life was really hectic and blah, 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 all that stuff, but it's not right now. And uh, you and I are sitting a good more than six feet apart and I haven't touched another living thing in at least 10 weeks. And I'm a very, and we humans are very tactile and my work is extremely tactile. And so the thing I miss the most is human contact. Life gets very busy, and I think it's uh, for, uh, what I'm finding is there's so much stuff to screen, uh, to stream or look at that I, I, I don't want to be watching anything on a box anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't. I want to be there close. <laughs> uh, so what do you think artists should take from this, and, and how do you think it's going to transform, or will it transform what we do? Because in... in in reality, we may not be seeing large assembly audiences for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, and should we all just shut down and start streaming stuff, or should we try in try to do something else? Well, you know, I, I applaud the people who are trying to sort out how to make theater online. And there are layers to this. You know, we all know that First of all, that theater is a language that's different from film or television. They're not the same language. And that when you, you know, because I've done this too, when you take a live theater production and put it on a screen, whether you're live streaming it or just recording it, it's a nice thing, but it's not the same as the live experience. It can't be. But it's a good thing. And so... And so I know companies are showing old productions so people can see something. And um, on Zoom, uh, monologues work. Um, and it's possible that shows like vagina monologues work with a cast because it's a very particular kind of presentation where the actors are in fact in, in a weird way little boxes you know, they don't have to interact with each other. Um, but I've witnessed enough attempts now <laughs> at people trying to make scenes work. They don't work. And they're never going to work. Um, the online platform demands a totally different language. And we don't know what that language is yet. And I understand that we have to start from somewhere. But the kind of theater that we know how to make, where you and I are on stage together and we're looking each other mm -hmm. in the eye, and this is something important. If we're not on the same place, but we're on Zoom and we're trying to perform a scene, in order for you to think I'm looking you in the eye, I have to look at the camera. And if I'm looking at the camera, I can't see you. That's so true. Yes, and I've therefore, seen that. we can't play the scene, actually. But if we let go of the physical things of the theater and go back to what we used to do, I remember doing radio drama. Radio drama is very powerful. And we understand that what's possible on Zoom is radio drama. Then something opens up. Thank you.
Well, I, I know like weeds in concrete, there has been some remarkable examples of art, performance, uh, live theatre during the lockdown. Uh, of the things that you've seen online or in person, uh, what's been the most memorable? Um, I think uh, I'm not the best person to be asking that question of in terms of all the stream things I've seen, because I have to say that the majority of the stream things I've seen have not touched my heart in the way that watching uh, Celso Machado play in the courtyard did on a Sunday afternoon, uh, playing and listening and being very aware. He's an amazing, amazing musician, being very aware of the bird sounds and the sirens and improvising with them that was just amazing and when the the pigeons kind of swirled in around him and came it was fabulous it was just fabulous so i have to say that this year i think some of the highlights really are ones that we created (laughs) (laughs) or we were involved in creating and and music in the courtyard people loved it so we're hoping to do that again uh so that was very moving I think the um, other thing, I mean, I did, I have gone to a few theater performances for small audiences, and I would just have to say that I applaud those, the the audiences, first of all, for being there, but also for the artists who have been working uh, with full houses, perhaps, their whole career, and now they're doing a show for 20 people, and still doing it with the same commitment and the same energy, and you just go, okay, good for them, because... There's only 12 of us here or 20 of us here, and they're doing the performance that they would be doing for 100 or 200 or 300 people. So I applaud the artists. I think the artists that are trying to do their own work. I also think there's been some really interesting things that have been happening. The culture has been approaching the work in a very interesting way. Um, and across the nation, uh, Volcano Theatre Volcano Theater brought a whole bunch of uh, artists together to do pieces that were short uh, commissions. Pretty interesting undertaking. There's been a lot going on, I think, and it's actually given people, I think it's given artists and artistic directors and producers and theater workers time and dancers and choreographers. Oh, I've seen some amazing choreography online too, actually, now that I think about it. So it's been a bit of a full year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean, I really do think that we're rising to the challenge and I, I just applaud people for being able to do that. And I also want to say that if anybody feels that they're lost and alone out there, they should contact a friendly artist and talk to them because they'll make them think about something different. It seems like there is a never-say-die attitude surrounding the fire hall when we have been in a complete performing arts lockdown and yet still we've done maybe 15, 20 plus performances and yet still not a single recorded case from this building. But I guess that's just tooting our own horn. Well, I think that that's it. We can toot our horn, but we can also say that that was the case with uh, other other theaters that were running open and running. Uh, I don't think uh, like they've just traced a whole community outbreak break to a ski hill uh, in the Okanagan. Now, I'm really sorry that that's happened for that ski hill because they need that money. But on the other side of it. The arts have been very, very careful about how we've done our work, and and uh, I I think that's why I'm advocating for this task group to actually look at uh, what it is we do as businesses. Yes, we're not for profit charities, but we operate as businesses uh, to figure out a way for 
how we can continue to operate uh, in a safe way. Now, I think we were closed down um, for a very good reason. I mean, the pandemic was growing, the numbers were going up there. So it really wasn't about what we were actually doing. It was about the fact that uh, the public health officer didn't want anybody to be doing anything. They didn't want people to be traveling. Uh, and so I think that the, the reason we need to talk about this is because we need to be considered as a business, not as um, something that doesn't affect um, uh, a lot of lives when we're closed, uh, and that we actually have a benefit. We provide a great benefit to healing because people that are sitting in their rooms and want to go to the theater to just be with people, not necessarily to talk to them, uh, might need a little lift before they get so depressed <laughs> they'll never get out of their chair. So Donna Spencer, I have to ask these questions because we ask all our guests, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do with it? Uh, well, I, I think the first thing I would do is obviously invest it in um, uh, an arts foundation that would be specific to programming for the fire hall, supporting programming for the fire hall, but I would also want to see it uh, a huge renovation happen here not to lose the character of the building at all, but to actually give us what we need to be able to do the work that we do so well without it. Um, and then I think I'd probably want to create a couple of, uh, I don't like this word necessarily, rehabilitation centers, but given where the fire hall is, I see people, a lot of people who've lost themselves. And um, I think the arts have a role in helping them find themselves, but it needs to be done within a, a series of rehabilitation centers that have the focus of, of helping these people find who they are again. And finally, before we wrap up, uh, we're coming to the end of the year. We've had a big, big year full of dramatic pauses. And as we edge into the holidays, how would you give us a an example of a holiday-themed dramatic pause? <sighs> hmm. Uh, I would, my dramatic pause, I'm going to describe it because, of course, I could take a dramatic pause and then the whole interview would be over. Um, a dramatic pause for me would be sitting in front of a fire, um, and it could be the one broadcast on television but, or whatever, but actually my preference would be to sit in, be sitting in front of the fire with, a, with snowflakes coming down, no sound because they're being muted by the, the sounds being muted by the snowflakes, with a good book and a glass of really good red wine. Sounds delightful. So we'll finish up with a few of our favourite examples of a dramatic pause from Rosemary Georgeson, Elena Villa, and Alan Morgan. Rose, if you had to do a dramatic pause, what would you do? What would I do? Or what is a dramatic pause to you? Sitting on a log on the beach watching the tide go in and out. <laughs> takes about eight hours to go out and come back in. That, that's a nice dramatic pause. That's a beautiful dramatic pause. <laughs> well, you've brought me back to theater, which is so beautiful. Um, and I kind of want to make like a beautiful tree that reaches, reaches high and reaches out and digs deep with its roots into the earth, because I think we've got to dig deep and reach high, which is something I post over my writing desk. Now I want spirits to enforce, arts to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless 
it be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. Thanks for listening. And from all of us here at the Firehall Arts Centre, have a safe and happy holiday. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Arts Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer, Donna Spencer, and produced by technical director, Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Arts Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website, www.firehallartscentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies. 